0: Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.
1: What do censors in China have to do with the movies Hollywood makes? I'm Melissa Wilkinson, and I write for Vox about film and culture. And today, I'm your host for Vox Conversations. writing about movies for 15 years, which means good, bad, blockbuster, indie, I watch them all. And over the years, I've started to have a vague sense that Hollywood storytelling is shifting. The movies have felt more and more abstract in their themes and politics. The casts of big-budget movies seem increasingly peppered with global stars who are unknown to many Americans. And I had questions. Was the increasing number of movies with Asian actors really about inclusion and diversity?
2: Enough of
3: that gibberish.
1: Why hadn't I seen Richard Gere in a studio movie for well over a decade?
2: But you
4: don't have $5,000. So I figure you're a dirty liar and I don't waste my time with dirty liars.
1: Did I just notice a prominently placed Chinese protein powder in that last scene? I'll do the diversion. Get that thing somewhere safe. And I'm sorry, what messaging app is on that character's smartphone?
4: There's a sat line here dialing China.
1: So it's made me wonder what is going on? The answer, of course, is China. It's a huge market that Hollywood has increasingly come to depend upon in order to earn back the enormous budgets they spend on franchises and tentpole films. And it's a country governed by an authoritarian regime with tight control over what movies its people can watch. (laughs) Eric Schwartzel reports on Hollywood for The Wall Street Journal, and he's just published a fascinating book about Hollywood's relationship with China called Red Carpet. Hollywood, China, and the battle for global supremacy. I talked with Eric about the stories behind these big shifts we're seeing on the screen, the power struggle between two countries vying for world leadership, and why, in many ways, that worldwide struggle is happening in movie theaters. I am so delighted to be talking to you about this because I'm really interested in how the topic of your book is showing up in our lives, in the everyday life of a everyday moviegoer. So I guess I wanted to start with this question, which is in the wake of all kinds of things going on, there's a pandemic, there's this shift to streaming, it really seems like Hollywood is struggling to find its footing. Does the American film industry's greatest hope Lie in China, or is that its biggest competition, or are we in some kind of other moment?
2: That's a great place to start because I think, in some cases, you're right. My book, in some ways, ruins movie going because when you start to see China's influence, you see it everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I think that right now we're in this very weird moment where, after we had an initial courtship between Hollywood and China, and then a very awkward marriage. We're in the middle of something of an acrimonious divorce. <laughs> and the divorce is coming for a number of reasons. One is, as you said, the domestic shift towards streaming and the sense, especially coming out of COVID, that the studios need to focus more on direct to consumer options than theatrical releases. But the other is that you alluded to is that China is grown more competitive with its own film industry. And these are movies that I think most Americans are not aware of, not going to see, but that in China and in other maybe smaller, more isolated markets around the world are making hundreds of millions of dollars regularly. So there's a sense that Chinese moviegoers don't need American movies anymore. And there's also a sense that Chinese authorities are really not in a position to do American studios any favors just because of the larger political situation. So that's why over the past year or so, we've had a number of major movies that typically would have sailed onto Chinese screens not playing there at all.
1: Hmm. I want to get into what those were and kind of what the effects of those were. But before we get there, I want to sail backwards in time with you a little bit. And I want to talk about a Chinese moviegoer. So I want to think about, let's say, a middle-aged Chinese guy. Maybe he lives in a city. He's lived in China his whole life. He's in his 40s. The movie-going experience for him has really, really changed over his lifetime, right? Even more than it might have for his American counterpart. So can you talk about that a little bit?
2: I love this framing. So if we're talking about someone who was born in the late 70s in a Chinese city, chances are he spent his adolescence seeing state-sponsored movies at the theater. So that means a lot of propaganda, a lot of documentaries about the glories of the Communist Party, the glories of Mao, the glories of every conceivable anniversary involved in the founding of the Communist Party. Um, That was the case until 1994, when American movies started to be imported into China. Hmm. The first movie allowed in was The Fugitive, starring Harrison Ford. which you can imagine for a movie going populace that until then had largely seen propaganda films was absolutely mind blowing. And there are reports of people in China going to see the fugitive six or seven times hmm. and cheering at the famous, it's not a waterfall, but what does he jump out of in that movie? The dam or something, you know. People cheering at that scene.
3: What happened? Where'd
2: he go? You get a Peter Pan right here off of this dam, right here. And after that, about 10 movies a year started flowing into China. And the reason why was not because of some broader cultural exchange, but because Chinese movie theaters really needed the extra money. Mm. Because it turns out that year after year of state propaganda movies aren't good for business. And they started to use the West to try and prop up their domestic theatrical market. Mm. So still at the time, despite the fact that, you know, let's say our hypothetical Chinese friend here is going to see the fugitive six or seven times. Ticket prices are so low, and there are so few screens in the country ultimately that it's still an economic afterthought. No one in Hollywood is thinking about the Chinese market from a revenue standpoint. That starts to change a little bit in 1999 with the release of Titanic, Mm. which makes around $50 million. Mm -hmm. I spoke with someone from my book. The first American movie he saw on the big screen was Titanic. Can you imagine that being the first? <laughs> American movie you go to see. I mean it's like where do you go from there? It's like the actually yeah. the perfect movie to be introduced to American cinema with. Truly. So still makes about 50 million dollars that causes some people's ears to perk up. Then about 10 years later, thanks to James Cameron again, mm-hmm. we have Avatar which makes 200 million dollars in China at the time considered something of a mathematical improbability because there were still so few screens in the country. But it doesn't take long after that, let's say around 2013, 2014, for Chinese moviegoers like this hypothetical 45-year-old to start seeing a regular flow of American movies coming in. At one point, it gets up to about 34, 35 a year. Hmm. And suddenly, China's box office is building and justifying 27 new screens a day. And it's pretty clear to everyone here in Hollywood that China will be the number one box office market in the world. So it goes from being an economic afterthought to the number one market in the world in about 20 years.
1: Wow. So it's the number one market, but only kind of if you can get your movie in, right? So not every Hollywood movie immediately gets to play it in a Chinese movie theater. So what is happening during that time with Hollywood trying to get those movies in front of those audiences?
2: Yeah, this is the key distinction. So every movie that wants to show in China has to be approved for release by the Chinese Communist Party. So when a studio has locked a film that it wants to play in China it has to send a copy of that movie to the ministry of propaganda where it screens for a group of folks i tried to really figure out like who are these people and it turns <laughs> out that they're often party bureaucrats who kind of shuffle through they even put retired film studies professors in the room <laughs> to try and watch for deeper subtextual meanings of films Mm -hmm. And they watch the movie, and there's a couple things that can happen. They can say, this is approved for release with no changes. This will be approved for release if you cut these three things or these four things. Or it's not being approved at all, and we're not going to tell you why. Mm -hmm. And so you can imagine... The reasons why, right? Obviously, there are political topics that are complete non-starters for this group, right? No studio is going to get in a movie about the Dalai Lama or that has any Tibetan characters or any reference to Chinese history that the authorities would rather their people not see. But then there are other less obvious concerns that the party has had over time, one of which is, you know, movies involving time travel, Hmm. In a world where there's time travel, that means that there's also a history that might be different than the one your government puts forward, which can prove problematic. Mm -hmm. There's also been a lot of scrutiny and, frankly, the rejection of any homosexual elements or stories involving same-sex couples or homosexual characters in movies. So those have also been rejected by the Chinese censors as well. So basically what that meant was that the Chinese market was Really only receptive to a certain kind of American movie. They were limiting the number allowed in. So every studio could probably count on getting four or five movies in a year. And the movies that they wanted to get in were the biggest. So that meant like the Marvel movies, the Transformers, the Jurassic Worlds. These are the kind of movies that studios typically earmark for Chinese release mm. because they're big and they make a lot of money and they often don't have any of that political or ideological radioactivity surrounding them.
1: Mm-hmm. But that does mean that sometimes studios have found <laughs> movies they didn't expect to be, you know, rejected, rejected, right? So, like, <laughs> I kept laughing reading the book because the one that sticks in my head is In Good Company, right? Which is this 2005 movie with Topher Grace, Dennis Quaid, and Scarlett Johansson.
4: I have just one question.
2: Uh, Dan, this isn't what it looks like. Well,
4: oh, yeah, what does it look like?
2: What
1: do you want me to say, Dad? Dad! I remember going to see it, and I thought, like, what on earth could you be rejecting that for? But they had a very clear reason for that, right?
2: Right, actually, and I have to say, I still have not seen this movie. (laughs) It really has its defenders. A lot of people bring this movie up as, like, a favorite of theirs. But this was an example that came up when I was interviewing a former head of the MPAA, who was running the MPAA whenever sort of the early days of the China-Hollywood relationship were starting.
1: Which the MPAA is now the MPA, but it's sort of the organization of the major Hollywood
2: studios. Exactly, right. Their top lobbying organization. And he said to a counterpart in China, he said, yeah, why wouldn't you let this movie in? As you said, it's like a PG-13 innocuous romantic comedy. And they said, well, the story is of this young guy, Topher Grace, getting a job and essentially unseating the man in charge, Dennis Quaid. And that is a theme that we cannot abide here because it's a theme of not respecting your elders and challenging authority. And any sort of storyline that continues that theme could prove to be a fissure in the stability that we are trying to maintain here at all times. And what I found so fascinating about that is like, I mean, think about the core narrative foundations of so much of American cinema, right? Mm -hmm. Like cinema has trained us over time to reflexively cheer for that character and to root for the fairest buellers of the world. And in China, the authorities have every reason to keep that kind of theme or that kind of character off screen.
1: Hmm. I think that's interesting because it does show that they understand the power of those narratives and how they kind of get into our imaginations. But I wanted to ask you about Disney's role in all of this and the sort of evolving relationship that Disney has had. I mean, one of the most interesting things in your story is that it's a lot about how Disney has tried to seed the ground to make people accept the giant universe that they own. You know, it's not just Disney characters. It's Pixar. It's Star Wars. It's the MCU. It's all these properties. And their success in a country depends on people loving and having nostalgia for those things, which is something our hypothetical moviegoer wouldn't necessarily have had. So can you talk a little bit about Disney?
2: Yeah, I would say if we were having this conversation two or three years ago, we would say Disney without question has been the most successful studio in China. They have a massive theme park. Avengers Endgame is still the highest grossing American release in China. Obviously, they have a number of characters there that are as well known in China these days as they are here in the U.S. But I think increasingly, that success is looking more and more like a liability. Hmm. I mean... Disney, going back about 20 or 30 years, has seen China as this growth market, this place where they could really establish a foothold. But you're right, they kind of were off the radar of the entire country for decades while they were seeding America with their mythology. So I think the best example of that blind spot is probably Star Wars, because when Disney bought Lucasfilm in 2012, one of the core pillars of their plan for monetizing that investment was China and bringing Star Wars to China. Mm. But you remember when The Force Awakens came out in 2015, so much of that movie's success was trading on the nostalgia for the original trilogy and the audience's deep awareness of that original trilogy. And so Disney discovered that when they released the movie in China, audiences were more confused than anything. I mean, at one point, there's that scene where Han Solo and Chewbacca step onto the Millennium Falcon, and Han Solo says, Chewie, we're home. Well, in China the moviegoers there thought that he lived on the ship. (laughs) They were like, oh, he literally means that he's home. And I think that it only grew more and more pronounced as the movies continued to come out. And that investment in the characters and the storylines that had been a boon to American audiences actually started to feel like homework to Chinese audiences. And Star Wars never really quite caught on. Mm -hmm. The other fascinating part about Disney's strategy, I think, involves their string of English language schools that they opened in the country. So one of the issues they had was when they were building their theme park in Shanghai, they knew that no child begs his or her parents to go to a theme park unless he or she loves the characters that they'll see there. And so they said, okay, well, we don't really have like decades of movies to do this, and we were not allowed to get a Disney Channel onto Chinese airwaves. So what they decided to do was to launch this string of schools called Disney English, which would essentially teach young Chinese children English, but using Disney characters, like Mickey wants an apple, or Luke Skywalker is 30 years old. Mm -hmm. And I walked by one of these schools when I was there, and I remember Toy Story 4 was coming out that week. Mm-hmm. And all of the teachers were wearing Toy Story 4 t-shirts. It <laughs> doubled as this like really effective marketing tool as well. And not only did these kids learn the English that their parents wanted them to speak, but they also left with an affection for these Disney characters that they had largely been unintroduced to.
1: And there was a market for that, in part because of the one-child policy being in place for so long, right, that there's money to spend on children learning English, and these schools are an
2: appealing possibility. Exactly. I mean, there was a business rationale for these schools, without a doubt. And certainly a business rationale for Disney expanding into China, because you're right. As they say, every kid born under the one-child policy not only has two parents, but two sets of grandparents ready to dote on them. So Mm -hmm. that is prime area for Disney to swoop in and say, well, what better way to dote on them than toys and trinkets and theme park tickets?
1: When we come back from the break, if you're a fan of the big Hollywood summer blockbuster, you may have noticed something different about these films over the past few years. A random character from China, a quick unsubtitled joke in Mandarin. What's going on?
4: Support for The Great Area comes from Mint Mobile, When you hear secret sauce, maybe you think of the mysterious ingredient in your favorite burger, or perhaps it's your grandmother's terrifying meatloaf, which somehow seemed to secrete sauce. But from now on, when you hear secret sauce, I want you to think about Mint Mobile. Their secret is that they only sell wireless service online. That means they can cut the cost of retail stores and pass those savings directly to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash gray area. That's mintmobile.com slash gray area. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash gray area. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details.
0: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
1: We're talking about people in China, how they've been interacting with movies, but... I think one of the most interesting things is that this has had a very measurable effect even on American moviegoers and the films we're seeing over the past few years. So I'm a film critic. I see a lot of movies. Most of them are forgettable and mediocre. But over the past, I would say, five years in summer blockbusters in particular are kind of big action blockbusters. I was starting to notice this trend. At least I thought I was noticing the trend, and I think your book confirmed it for me, which was where there's a Chinese character who's cast in the movie, which I kind of understood why that was happening. But often, they would make some kind of a joke in Mandarin. It wouldn't be usually translated or subtitled in any way. So it wasn't a joke for me, and I knew that, and that was fine, but I could tell the joke was at the expense of one of the white characters.
2: Ah, uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: And this had happened repeatedly. I mean, the most recent one I remember is that in Moonfall, which is Roland Emmerich's movie that came out last winter, Yes. there's a joke about one of the white characters has a Chinese character tattoo.
2: What do those mean? It's
1: my parents' names.
2: I've got
3: one kind of like it. And
1: the Chinese character kind of Chuckles about it. Jonas Brothers. (laughs)
3: Just
1: messing with you. Oh my God. Your face was priceless. And we never find out what the tattoo actually says. So you need to be able to read it in order to know what the joke is. And I've seen this repeatedly. I think it's like just funny because it's not the sort of thing that Hollywood typically does. You know, they normally over explain everything. So I think what I'm observing is a shift that's been happening over the past few decades in films sort of more broadly. So I'm wondering if we can switch from the Chinese 45-year-old to his American counterpart. And in what ways has this move towards the Chinese audience or the Chinese market affected how we're seeing movies? Like, What changes have been made in our viewing because specifically of this push towards capturing a Chinese market?
2: I love the example of Moonfall, which it's no coincidence, which is not insignificantly financed by Chinese money, which would explain that joke and I think some of the casting decisions that that movie made. But you're absolutely right that studios, when they started to realize how much money was to be made in the Chinese market, not only did they avoid storylines that would be politically problematic, but they also thought to themselves, well, then how can we maximize revenue or interest there. Mm. And one thing that they started doing was casting Chinese actors and actresses in these films. It started around 2012 or 2013, like X-Men movies, Transformer movies. They would cast, often in very bit cameo roles, these Chinese actors and actresses who were hugely famous in their home country, but Unknown in America and then use those bit parts to market the film in China. I mean, I think it really is an example of sort of Hollywood really underestimating the Chinese audience, because as soon as Chinese moviegoers went to see these movies and they realized that this was a bait and switch, they got very angry at the pandering, and they started calling the women in these bit roles flower vases. Hmm. And they said that any movie that leaned too hard into trying to appeal to the Chinese market was getting soy sauced. Hmm. Nonetheless, Hollywood still does it, as evidenced by your observations. But I think the other ways that you would start to see this in American moviegoing was, A, it certainly fueled the top-heavy nature of the studio slate these days, because it allowed studios to justify investing more and more money into their tentpole franchises, because those were the global releases, those were the movies that China wanted.
1: So, like, in the past let's say, in the 1990s and certainly in the 70s and 80s, some more mid-budget movies made for adults. That's usually how we think about it. And now the lion's share of studio money goes to the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies and the DC movies and the franchises. And those movies basically don't even get made anymore,
2: right? Exactly. And one reason that business strategy was smart was because the Chinese market had grown so large. And so I think you started to see, not only in casting decisions, there were also a number of examples where if you saw a movie and there was some sort of hero emerging in the third act, chances are he may come from China, or you certainly didn't see China portrayed in any negative light, right? It was always neutral to positive. So you have this situation where American movies, which we've always seen as sort of a main artery of expression are not able to really fully explore or interrogate the geopolitical issue of our time because that market access is so paramount. Mm. And then, like I said, I think there's all these cosmetic ways that the movies have changed. There are examples, like I mentioned this Transformers movie that I got a little obsessed with, where they did everything. They cast people, they filmed scenes there, they even struck a bunch of product placement deals. So there's all this Chinese protein powder. I (laughs) mean, one thing that you'll notice, a lot of times... If they show like a messaging app on someone's phone, Mm -hmm. it's very often a Chinese messaging app. Like we wouldn't really know it. Like Western eyes wouldn't necessarily identify it as such. But it serves a couple of roles. It might be familiar to Chinese audiences, but it also is just a kind of an easy check to cash from a Chinese company that wants to be in front of a bunch of American audiences.
1: And it does feel like the threat of censorship has also kind of exerted pressure kind of on a film Plot based on the narrative itself. So one thing that's notable, and there's this kind of famous story about a movie having to be changed in post-production laboriously. And maybe you can tell us about that. But of course, the result is it's much easier to change a movie before you make it than it is after you've shot it, Mm. even in our CGI age. And so studios are already thinking about, oh, well, we can't have this in the movie because we already know that that will disqualify it from release in China, right? But that also means that that element might not appear in the movie at
2: all. Right. I think it's easy to see how it quickly went from a culture of censorship to Mm self-censorship because studios, when they started getting their movies into China, even back in the 90s, not only did they see what movies of their own got in and were rejected, but what other movies got in or were rejected. And so very quickly, you had this kind of data pool Mm -hmm. (laughs) that you could look at and say, well, this one didn't get in or this one had to cut that scene. So we can, at the script level start to change these films so we don't run into those problems. But the example you alluded to was in 2009, MGM wanted to remake Red Dawn. Another classic of the VHS (laughs) era, right? Mm -hmm. About a group of teenage vigilantes who want to defend their hometown against Soviet invaders. Well, MGM, I guess that they were foretelling a little bit of the nostalgia boom in 2009 whenever they said, let's remake this movie. And so they said, well, you know, we can't make russia the invader ironically today to think that but we could make china the invader that is sort of the country that could plausibly mount a land invasion of the u.s Mm. and so they film the movie they have a hemsworth brother in it and they put it together And then Chinese authorities hear of this movie being released. Now, it's important to point out that no one at MGM thought this movie would be released in China. Mm. That was not necessarily an economic consideration here. But nonetheless, Chinese authorities start communicating through Chinese state media that this is going to be a problem. And there are a number of reasons why it remains a problem even if the movie is not going to show in Chinese theaters. MGM also releases the James Bond movies. It releases a bunch of other films that do rely on the Chinese market. And the Chinese authorities have demonstrated in the past that if they want to punish a studio for making a certain film, they might just do it wherever they can. And so MGM has a decision to make and they ultimately decide to send the finished film to a special effects company that is, no longer exists. But when it did, it was here in Burbank, next to like a medical imaging office. <laughs> and I loved talking to these visual effects workers because I think we often think of visual effects as Avatar and Fast and the Furious. Right. But these were the workers who I think really are responsible for movies being fantasies because they were the ones who went in and erased the boom mic, or erased... One guy told me that he had a job once where he had to erase the back acne off of some <laughs> Hollywood action star. I mean, these are the real heroes of Hollywood because they're the ones who kind of keep the movies in that dreamscape, right? Mm-hmm. Of no imperfections. And they get this finished film. and It's still, I think, the biggest job they ever had to do. And they had to take every reference to China. So every Chinese flag, every line of dialogue referencing China every chinese military uniform and change it into a north korean one mm. and costed the studio a million dollars it took hours and hours of overtime to get it done but as you said it was still ultimately worth it if it meant not releasing a movie that was going to anger chinese authorities and what i thought was so fascinating was when that happened it, the movie ultimately came out in 2012 that change the editing change that was known at the time mm. People knew that MGM was doing this, and it was reported on, but it was kind of received a little nonchalantly, or maybe like, "Ah, it's a little weird, you know, I guess that's just what you have to do to work with China. And I think it's a sign of how much has changed in relations between the two countries because I think if that happened today, there might even be like congressional hearings on it yeah. in the decision, you know? To say nothing of the problematic nature of taking actors who were playing Chinese <laughs> characters and <laughs> casting them instead as North Korean <laughs> through the change of subtitles. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, like, there's a lot of problems there.
1: Yeah, and this even extends to hiring In some measurable ways, you kind of allude to the fact in the book that if you haven't seen Richard Gere in a movie in a while, it might be because he is an outspoken supporter of Tibet and has been for decades, right?
2: Exactly. I mean, he was Mr. Tibet on the red carpet. I mean, he interrupted an Academy Awards ceremony before it was cool in 1993 to publicly denounce human rights abuses in Tibet.
3: I wonder if Deng Xiaoping is actually watching this right now. What a horrendous human rights situation there is in China, not only towards their own people, but to Tibet as well.
2: And that was all fine and good for many, many years. But as China's box office became more and more of an important part of each studio's business, he became uncastable Mm. because no movie starring him would ever be released in China. So he hasn't been in a major studio film since 2009. Mm. And when I set out to write this book, that was one thing I really wanted to nail down because everyone always suspected that was why Richard Gere wasn't working in the kinds of movies he used to. And, you know, people here in Hollywood, they're very nice. So one person told me that Richard Gere was always getting John Travolta's leftovers. (laughs) And so, like, they didn't think that the China was the reason he wasn't working. But it turns out, I spoke to someone at Warner Brothers who said, you know, it wasn't like there was a list that went out that said, don't hire these actors. But that with Richard Gere, it always became a conversation of, well, if we can call Gary Oldman, call Gary Oldman, because it's just not worth taking on the risk. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind here, is that a lot of the culture that I describe of self-censorship and so on are really just people making decisions and trying to limit risk and exposure. And you start to see like how this broader culture and this broader dynamic take shape from day-to-day decisions at the root individual level.
1: So that is really interesting to me because one thing that I think a lot of people don't realize about Hollywood history is that this is almost a repeat of things that have always gone on in Hollywood history, which you get into a bit in the book, but we have the example of the Hayes Code sort of from the 30s to roughly around 1960-ish, which was Hollywood censoring itself in order to kind of keep the government from censoring it. Or we have what went on in the McCarthy era where people were getting literally blacklisted because they were suspected of having communist ties. So, I mean, those are just two examples, but this is kind of one of those things, right? This fits into a broader Hollywood history.
2: Absolutely. And actually, I was struck by just, as I dived into the Hollywood history, just how many parallels there were between the early days of Hollywood and what we're seeing China do now. Mm. For instance, whenever Hollywood movies started to be exported abroad, there was an effort to only send movies overseas where America looked good. Mm. Mm -hmm. It was like, you can make the movies where America looks bad, but we're not going to show them to the neighbors. Right? Mm-hmm. And there's a similar dynamic at work in China where really only the most sanitized portrayals of Chinese life are typically those that are exported abroad. And you're right. I think certainly the Hayes Code and what it kept off screen, there are certainly parallels there between that and what the Chinese Communist Party chooses to keep off screen today. Interestingly, the Hayes Code was so rooted in religious concerns. Yeah. Whereas the CCP's code, if you will, is much more rooted in political concerns. Mm. But it raises a question about whether or not this is a natural evolution of an entertainment industry and whether or not this kind of ebb and flow is inevitable with expression like this. I'm not quite sure of the answer of that. But one thing that I found so interesting was that a lot of the concessions we talk about studios making for overseas audiences, that also predates China Hmm. by quite a bit, where Mexico in the 1920s stopped showing American movies because they thought that the movies were trafficking in stereotypes of Mexicans.
1: And they were probably right.
2: They were probably right, and it was certainly a lot of portrayals of Chinese people that they took issue with as well, and rightfully. So I think you're right that not all of it is wholly new Mm
3: -hmm.
2: or unique to the U.S.-China relationship. I think the reason this is different is, A, we're talking about a scale here in terms of the Chinese market that's really never been seen before, and B... None of those other markets throughout history really cast themselves as ideological rivals to the US.
1: Mm. Yeah, I I really was struck The whole way through the book that this is a little bit of a story of power struggle, of course, right? We're talking about geopolitics here, but that it's a very complicated power struggle because on the one hand, the Chinese Communist Party has an ideology that they wish to sort of maintain, that they're operating by, and that they're willing to you know, make decisions that no American company would ever make. So they will kick a very successful movie out of the theaters after a few weeks so that they can put one of their propaganda films in its place, right? Or they're willing to say, MGM, if you release this movie, not even in our country, we will not allow you to release this movie that's probably bound to be very successful. That's just something they'll do, right? And on the other hand, we have America and Hollywood, and Hollywood's ideology at this point is basically capital. And profit, right? Mm -hmm. That's the ideology. And at the moment, it kind of feels like the Chinese ideological system is winning because of a set of complicated factors, right? But they're starting to kind of feel like they have the upper hand on Hollywood. They've forced concessions, and they haven't made those same concessions in their own films, right?
2: I think you're right. I think in many cases, you could make the argument that the Chinese Communist Party has gotten everything they wanted out of this relationship. They've not only bent an industry to their will, but they've also essentially appropriated its model and its playbook to their own means. And you're right, I think it seems like they are winning. Now, part of the reason why is because, as you said, they can, right? They have things that they can do, whether it's to underwrite or subsidize those efforts that Hollywood can't. But I think your question, I think it gets it like, one reason why Americans, I think, hold Hollywood to a different standard than other Western businesses operating in China. Mm. And it's because of that history. I think in the past... Americans have expected Hollywood to do America's bidding.
1: Yeah, Mm -hmm.
2: Even in its earliest days, Hollywood was described as an adjunct of the State Department. And after World War II, American movies were sent to Europe to sort of help sell this fractured continent on the virtues of capitalism and democracy. I mean, we talked about the original Red Dawn, right? Mm -hmm. That was sort of Cold War cinema. We went to the movies to sort of rally Americans to the cause. And I think what's happened in the 30 years since then is that Hollywood, I guess, much like maybe the tech industry, sees itself as almost borderless Mm. and a global industry whose main job, as you said, is to make money. So I think a lot of executives, if they were on this call and they were given truth serum, they would say it's not my job to sell America to the world. You know, it's my job to sell movies to the world. Mm -hmm. And that, like I said, fairly or not, I think comes as an affront to Americans who have just sort of downloaded this idea of the movies as sort of de facto pieces of Americana that we send around the world in the form of soft power.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it does kind of contribute to how complicated Hollywood politics are, right? Like, sometimes people think about them, depending on their politics, as promoters of the status quo or or promoters of some kind of liberal agenda. But most big Hollywood movies have little to no point of view, (laughs) you know, and this story starts to get at why. It's because they're trying to be— for everyone, rather than just for Americans.
2: Yeah, I love that. I love that. I mean, I think the reason that so many people are concerned about China's influence is not, as you said, because they're worried about the casting of some Chinese actress in a new Jurassic World movie, but because it's become clear that the studios releasing those Jurassic World-type movies are never going to make the Tiananmen Square movie, are never going to make the drama about Xinjiang or anything that's remotely controversial about life in contemporary China, because it threatens the bigger holdings or even the parent company that houses the studio itself. That, I think, is where the concern is and why it's about more than just these relatively already anonymous blockbusters being tweaked here and there.
1: We're going to take one last short break, and after that, why are more and more American movies, even ones being made with Chinese audiences in mind, bombing in Beijing? Some recent movies that have been kind of hailed for, I guess, quote unquote, Asian representation or Chinese representation have run into snags, right? So you write, for instance, about crazy rich Asians, which I wasn't like shocked to discover had bombed in China. But, you know, one of the reasons (laughs) was that for Americans, it was sort of heralded as this leap forward in representation of Asian characters in Hollywood cinema. For Chinese audience members, they were used to seeing Chinese people in their movies because they had been watching Chinese movies, right? Alongside Hollywood movies. And that, in addition, I was checking around and I'm pretty sure that Turning Red, the Pixar movie about... Chinese-Canadian Girl. It doesn't seem like it got officially released in China. And I just realized, I actually had missed this, but I didn't realize that Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness didn't manage to get a release. And in fact, the MCU movies have had trouble for the past several installments getting released. So can you talk about what's going on like right now with these films?
2: Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think the Crazy Rich Asians example was a bit of a harbinger because... Starting around 2015 or 2016, American movies started to see real competition from Chinese movies because China, really from its earliest days of letting American films into the market, wanted to commercialize their own films. And in recent years, we've seen incredible success where, I mean, frankly, you know, in our jobs, we constantly are hearing from readers about why don't the studios make movies like they used to, right? Yep. If you go to a Chinese movie theater, oftentimes the marquee looks a lot like the marquees that those readers are missing. There's a really healthy mix of dramas and comedies and science fiction films and still obviously the propaganda movies and the movies extolling the virtues of China, but also just like a really healthy diet of different kinds of stories that Chinese audiences, it should come as no surprise, are growing to prefer to American films. Mm. But the MCU challenges have really been quite fascinating to watch because it's hard to know the reasons behind any film being rejected for release in China. There's been certainly a pattern when it comes to the MCU. We've had now like at least four or five films, starting with Black Widow, that haven't been allowed in. And one thing that's been interesting is I think that the American side call for better representation seems to have really just introduced more landmines in a lot of ways for studios hmm. that want to access the Chinese markets. I'll give you an example. So with The Eternals, the Marvel movie that came out late last year, the director Chloe Zhao, who that was her first movie after winning the Oscar for Nomad Land.
1: Yes, that's right.
2: Obviously, a hiring that sort of speaks to the call to bring new voices into those kinds of films. But during the Oscar campaign, she became persona non grata in China after years-old comments she had made that were critical of the country had resurfaced. And so, like I said, hard to know if that's exactly the reason why the movie she then directed, The Eternals, didn't play in Chinese theaters, But it's a pretty good guess, right? Mm -hmm. And same goes with Shang-Chi. I mean, I think there's no doubt that that movie was greenlit at Marvel because of its inherent appeal in China. Mm -hmm. Then, of course, ironically, it doesn't play in China at all, perhaps because its lead actor had also made comments years earlier that were critical of China. Mm -hmm. I mean, troublingly, there's a world where studios going forward say actually, you know what, let's avoid any and all Chinese casting decisions, Chinese stories, because it really just sets up too many tripwires.
1: Yeah, and that could have some interesting kind of domino effects in that maybe some movies will just be budgeted at different levels so they don't need the Chinese audience. That could be something that could happen, although it might require studio executives with, bigger imaginations than it sometimes feels like they have now. But you can imagine if you desperately need that audience, then you're going to do whatever you can to make sure that you can continue collecting their box office receipts. And the situation we find ourselves in right now is that theaters are struggling to stay alive as it is. So that kind of makes sense. One other thing that you write about that I think really speaks to the future, maybe, is you went to Kenya and Sort of spent time with people who were watching exported Chinese entertainment. And that experience is really eye-opening.
2: Yeah, because this was always described to me as the last leg of China's efforts to build its own Hollywood. I mean, if there's a theme emerging here, it might be the complacency of Hollywood executives. But I remember when I was working on this book, I would often hear from people who would say, you know, well, China's never going to succeed because Americans are never going to go see Chinese movies. And... There's probably some truth to that, but there's a big wide world out there. And the truth is that there are a lot of markets where China is successfully exporting its movies. And to your earlier point about China's system allowing it to sort of operate outside of market rules, there's a program throughout Africa called the 10,000 Villages Project, which distributes low cost satellite dishes to villages. Across the continent. And these are villages that have largely already been the recipient of a lot of Chinese investment in the form of infrastructure and loans, and in some cases, healthcare and vaccines more recently. Mm -hmm. And the satellite dishes are serving as kind of a cultural introduction to the country. So I went to some villages throughout Kenya. Where, you know, you'd walk up to a home or an apartment that had this bright orange satellite dish on the roof. And, I mean, unannounced, I walked into one apartment and everyone there is watching a Chinese soap opera. And I talked to folks who got these satellite dishes and started watching Chinese Kung Fu. And the satellite dishes aren't only providing Chinese entertainment. They also have American entertainment and Kenyan entertainment, telenovelas. I mean, every kind of channel you could possibly want. But they do have a lot of Chinese offerings. And frankly, it's sticking. I wouldn't necessarily say that when I spoke to people there in early 2020, that it was replacing American or Kenyan entertainment. Mm -hmm. But it was certainly coexisting. I met a young boy who was about four years old, and his hero was the Monkey King which is this Chinese mythological figure but his second hero was the rock. Mm-hmm. And so like he's sort of this embodiment of where much of the world is right now is sort of caught between two superpowers. And what I thought was so interesting was my last interview on that trip was with the guy who is Kenya's film minister his name is Ezekiel Matua and he is this incredibly socially conservative politician who really has made it his mission to scrub Kenya of all images, portrayals of homosexuality. That is his absolute cause. And he was very upfront when we spoke. He said, I love importing Chinese movies because they've already been censored for me. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, basically, I have two options here. I can import entertainment that aligns with my values, or I can import your, he used me throughout the interview as like a stand-in of all of Western (laughs) civilization. He said, or I could import your sort of Western values and pollute my country with them. And so you started to see this kind of alternate distribution network forming of these politically aligned countries that serve as these kind of markets for Chinese entertainment, not necessarily because maybe that's what people would prefer to watch, but that's because what their political leaders would prefer they watch.
1: Mm -hmm. Which is exactly what's gone on in China for decades. It's the same exact model. And it's interesting to compare it to, again, what goes on in Hollywood. Something I've written about recently is the relationship between Hollywood and the Pentagon, And in that model, if a studio wants to use, like, say they're making Top Gun Maverick and they want to use military equipment, they go to the Pentagon and they say, we'd like to work with you. And then the Pentagon looks at the script, probably offers some suggestions or changes as they have for decades. But if the studio says oh, we don't want to make those changes, then the Pentagon never says, you can't make the movie. Mm -hmm. They just say, we're not going to be involved, right? So it's like a different model of how that works between the two systems, but one of them has a lot more control in place and it might actually be working out in a way that is unexpected, perhaps, to Americans.
2: Many people point out, when I describe China's system, they'll say, well, America has been doing that for decades, right? Like, America spreads propaganda around the world and America forces its way of life onto people through the movies. I do think we're talking about two very different systems of scale here, where you're right, one of the key differences is you can still make the movie, even if the Pentagon doesn't like it. Not only that, you can make a movie where the Pentagon's the bad guy. Mm -hmm. And in China, not only is every movie approved for release before it comes out, it's approved before the script is even moved into production. So there's a system there that I think is far more integrated Mm. than anything that we're accustomed to seeing here in the U.S. I mean, another difference is we don't have the Pentagon calling Jerry Bruckheimer and saying, hey, the anniversary of Pearl Harbor is coming up. It'd be really great if you made a movie about it. And then calling Jennifer Lawrence and saying, it'd be really great if you starred in this movie. That kind of thing really does happen in China to the point where actors and directors and producers are often sort of forced off of projects and said, okay, Beijing's calling, time for you to go make a movie for them.
1: So I think this brings me back to something that I find disorienting, (laughs) even though it's a little bit appealing, which is that Hollywood has, I think, either consciously or like by some kind of default, pushed the narrative of at least American supremacy abroad or like Hollywood supremacy, right? We assume that our movies will be seen by the rest of the world at this point. And that's been a growing thing over time. But we just assume, oh, this is the gold standard. Hollywood is the gold standard movies. But China has actually managed to kind of push that to the brink of a cliff, if not right off of it. We're kind of heading in the direction where Hollywood's movies may not be the default for most of the world. And they did this by not just copying Hollywood's methods, but figuring out how to then export it, right? So are we seeing a story here that's like bigger than just the movies, do you think?
2: Yeah, I think so. And it was actually the reason why I thought this ultimately was a book, because I think the movies have become this proxy for the broader rivalry forming between the U.S. and China. And I think it ultimately becomes a story of values and what values are shipped around the world. Because you're right, for a hundred years, the movies have been considered kind of the default global entertainment. There's this quote that I just, I love that said that the movies helped turn America into an empire by invitation. Hmm. Just sort of this gravitational pull that they had toward the country and its way of life. And I think China, which now sees its turn at dominating a century, wants to copy that playbook. And so there will be major implications beyond the cinema when it comes to what heroes are elevated, what stories are told, what stories aren't told, and ultimately how moviegoers around the world see themselves and see the people in charge. Mm. You referenced my trip to Kenya. I mean, really one of the more startling interactions I had reporting this book was with a young gay man in Kenya who is living in the country where his film minister is aligning himself with China and aligning himself with Chinese censorship. And he told me over and over again of the workarounds he's had to find to watch things like Call Me By Your Name or to access movies that you and I could go and find with a couple Google searches, right? Mm -hmm. And ultimately then about the precautions he has to take at work in the event that people find out he's gay and what he has to navigate in terms of what his family knows about his life. Like you see how the images on screen and the narratives elevated by the movies really quickly translate and then reflect lives off screen too.
1: So, I think to sort of ask you my final question and the thing that keeps lingering in my mind is 10 years from now, 20 years from now, you and I were movie watching people we would be even if our jobs didn't require what kind of things Do you think we're going to be watching? I mean, you alluded at the beginning to the fact that there's a kind of divorce going on in this marriage of Hollywood and China. Do you think there'll be fewer IP grabs because they're not going to be able to make back the money they used to if they're not getting Chinese release? Does that mean mid-budget movies? Are we going to be watching The Wandering Earth and other Chinese successful movies? If you had to wager what we'll be watching, what do you think it'll be?
2: Well, I would say the major component of that projection would probably be where we're watching them. Mm, mm -hmm. And I think the rise of streaming has certainly lessened China's leverage on the American entertainment system because streaming doesn't require China. Streaming services are largely not allowed into China. And so they're kind of building a business model that's not relying on the Chinese consumer At all. And so, in a world where more and more of the priority shifts to streaming, that's probably going to result in less and less Chinese influence. Mm. I mean, the one reason why I would say I'm probably more cautious in saying that China's influence in Hollywood is waning is because I think all of the studios are still owned by larger parent companies with larger interests in the market. So, losing a future where those parent companies have lost access to the Chinese market means a future where a whole lot of other things have changed. There's just been a geopolitical realignment that we really can't foresee. So I think I can imagine a world 10 years from now where you and I are talking about movies and entertainment that increasingly feel a little bit more bespoke to America because they're being offered on streaming services that are relying less on the global market or if they're relying on the global market they're able to sort of micro target country by country as as Netflix often does and then i think there in china i think the industry that has seen this explosive growth over 20 years will probably continue to grow in large part because it's government wants it to yeah and i think that chinese authorities in many ways have learned from the best the power of culture in complementing a country's political rise.
1: Hmm. Well, that actually sounds somewhat appealing to me as a critic. I miss the bespoke, so maybe we'll be getting more of that kind of thing. But this has been such a fascinating book to read and such a fascinating conversation to have. I feel like I learned a lot that I didn't know, even though I cover the industry. But I think it's just a really engaging story that's so much bigger than just the movies. So thank you so much for talking with me about it.
2: Oh, that means a lot. Thank you, Alyssa.
1: Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drozdovska. Patrick Boyd mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement, we want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we could improve. If you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, please share it with your friends and rate and review. And join us next week for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations.